few weeks ago in preparing for um, this study in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, I was reminded of a, uh, of a Christian man who lived in the mid to latter 1800s um, by the name of Charles Thomas Studd, um, known as C.T. Studd. He's a man that has had um, biographies written about him. And you know one of the traps that can happen when you read Christian biographies, right? You start reading about these men or women who are mightily used by God, and you can start thinking, like, what am I doing with my life? But there's something to that. You see sometimes these radical sacrifices that people make, and we are meant not to be depressed, but encouraged by their example. I think C.T. Studd, who was by no means a perfect man whatsoever, he was a saved man, yet when you look at his life, there is definitely encouragement that we could take from his example. To give you a little bit of context about him, he's a man who, as one writer put it, could have lived a life of ease and pleasure in England. His dad was extremely wealthy. If I remember correctly, he had planted indigo in India and became extremely wealthy. When I say extremely wealthy, I mean extremely wealthy. If you were to look up C.T. Studd's childhood home and you see the home that he lived in, even in the time in which he was living, it was massive. Well, one day, one of his dad's friends came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And he had asked um, C.T.'s dad, whose name was Edward, this very rich man, to come to a meeting at a theater. It was a meeting place where D.L. Moody was holding evangelistic outreaches. So Edward Studd ends up going there, and at that meeting, he hears the gospel preached. He hears about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, and he becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and his life was changed. As a matter of fact, he became so passionate about people coming to know Christ, he would open up his home, which again, I told you, was massive. He would open it up to hundreds of people. He would invite pastors to come to this, these gatherings of hundreds of people, and they would preach, and his hope was that people would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Well, he had three boys who achieved great accolades in um, athletics, particularly cricket. And as he brought um, people to the home, there was one minister in particular who had interpersonal conversations with his sons, and they came to know Christ. C.T. Studd was one of them. Um, for the next six years, after he came to know Christ, um, this was on the verge of him going to college, if I remember correctly, he said he kind of lived a kind of backslidden Christian life. Uh, maybe it would be what some of us today would just think is a normal Christian life, but when C.T. looked back on it, he thought, no, I'm living a kind of backslidden Christian life. He achieved great accolades to the point where even, even now, to this day, he is still known as one of the best cricket players in England's history. Even at the time, he was arguably, as a young man, known as arguably the best player, uh, best cricket player in Britain. Doesn't impress us so much. We're not cricket people here in the United States, but it was a big deal, especially then. So he achieved these accolades, um, so well known, but then there came a time when his brother became very ill, I believe his brother George. They thought George was going to die, but he didn't die. But during that time, CT was right by his brother's bedside and it became a life-changing event for him. He remembered how his brother was thinking about Christ if I remember correctly, also the scriptures. He wasn't thinking about fame or fortune or anything of, of, of that nature. And C.T. thought he saw in that moment the futility of this life. To say, apart from Christ, when you get to that moment where you might be on your deathbed, your fame isn't going to matter, your honor isn't going to matter, your money's not going to matter. What's going to matter is where you are going to be for eternity. 
And he saw the futility and I would argue also the brevity of this life. And all of a sudden at that moment, and with some events that happened shortly thereafter, he decided to give his life to see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't too long after that he got to lead the first person that he ever led to Christ, to Christ. And he said that there was a joy. For somebody who experienced the joys of this world, he said that was like a joy like he hadn't experienced anywhere else. Well, he ends up, not too long after that, going to China to do missions work. And while he's in China, his father dies, which means that he would then come into a massive inheritance, especially by today's standards, a very large inheritance. And he had a decision as to what he was going to do with it. And in a rather shocking, you know, to many people around him, many people at that time, he ended up giving just about all of it away. He gave to the work of D.L. Moody. Um, if I remember correctly, it was a part of helping start the Bo Moody Bible Institute. He gave to the work of George Mueller. You know, George Mueller was that man who lived by faith, praying that God would supply the needs so that um, the orphanages that he started would be able to provide for the children that were under the care of those orphanages. And he gave to other ministries as well. He kept a little bit, of a, a little bit aside because he had thought, you know, one day I'm going to get married. I may have children. I, I need to keep a little bit on the side. And when he met his wife-to-be... Priscilla, she ended up encouraging him to give it all away. She, they, they had some eccentric ways, and she kind of thought like him, hey, didn't you feel a conviction to kind of give it all away? Give it all away, and we'll trust the Lord, and we will live by faith. And they did. He was used mightily. He was used mightily in Britain. He was used mightily in India. Ends up going to Central Africa without his family later on in his life, but with the support of his wife would translate the Bible into the New Testament um, and some of the Psalms to reach out to the African tribe that he was reaching out to, among whom were cannibals and so on. I share with you his story because I think to me it's a challenge and it's also a reminder that Christianity ought to change one's relationship with possessions. To be clear, so let me say this on the front end, to be clear, the Bible by no means calls all Christians to do what C.T. Studd did. Let's make that clear. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, he tells Timothy, tell Christians who are rich, this is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, tell Christians who are rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be ready to give and willing to share, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18. doesn't say tell them to give everything away and to go out onto the mission field. Some Christians will be successful, for instance, in a particular industry. Many of you know my story, that God opened up the door to ministry for me through a man by the name of Douglas Rhoda, who went home to be with the Lord in 2008. In 1994, this man started a company called Top Knobs USA, sold doorknobs to places like Lowe's and Home Depot, was very successful. And he did that, and I happened to, on the first day of my internship at a local church here on Staten Island, I went and had a meeting with him. I had no idea what was going on in that meeting. I was just meeting a brother, telling him about my passion to see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, this successful businessman, ends up donating money for the church fellowship hall to be refurbished and $20,000 for me if I'd be willing to forego my job at a brokerage in the city that I was supposed to start in October and take that as my annual salary. And my family that had helped fund my, um, help, they did fund my education at Pace University was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, what? 
Now, now, that was a big deal. And I'm happy that Doug Rhoda didn't just say, you know, I'm going to give it all away and I'm just going to go to the mission field. He was successful and he gave to organizations. He gave to churches. He gave to camps. He was a very successful man. And he was somebody that God used to put a fork in the road of my life. And I think that even as he was still serving at uh, Montgomery Evangelical Free Church in New Jersey. But again, whereas for many in this life, possessions will have them. The Christian recognizes that he or she has possessions. And God wants you to enjoy them. He gives them to you as gifts of his beneficence, showing his benevolence to you. He wants you. God has given us all things to richly enjoy, to use the language that Paul used. But at the same time, God knows that possessions can have us. And when you become a Christian, you have a different relationship with things. You may hold possessions in your hand, of course, but you hold them with a light grip instead of a vice grip, looking for opportunities to do good and to bless others, to be used by God to make a difference in people's lives. All of a sudden, your perspective of things change. And that's what is well illustrated in Acts chapter 2 in the early church. All of a sudden, the gospel radically changes 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. And among the things that change, their mindset changes. They realize they're not good enough to get into heaven. They realize they deserve the wrath of God. They had a mindset change. They had a lifestyle change. All of a sudden, they were committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. They devoted themselves, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching. They became learners. They became students. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They spent time with other Christians. They spent time breaking bread together, celebrating the Lord's Supper and they gave themselves to prayer. But among the things that changed was their relationship with possessions. They started looking around them at people in their lives that needed help at that given time. And they said, what I have, I have for a purpose to glorify God and to help others. And they made a difference in the lives of the people around them tremendously. We're going to see that in the text that is before us. Remember, we are looking at a kind of idyllic um, description of the early church here in Acts chapter 2. But when you go through the first century, you see that the church was a mixed bag. Just read Paul's epistles to the the, um, different churches, the Philippians, the Ephesians, Corinthians, Galatians, and so on. Mixed bag. Look at what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. I say all that to say we're going to get a kind of idyllic picture of what the church was like in those early days. But please know, even in the first century, the church was a mixed bag filled with sinners that were redeemed by the grace of God. And it was by no means perfect. But nonetheless, let's continue our study of this beautiful description, beginning in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, where we read, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Fear swept through Jerusalem. That's kind of language that you kind of see here. Then fear came upon every soul. Phobos is the Greek word that's used here for fear. It's where we get our English word phobia from. Now, we're not told what kind of fear this was. Doubtless, it was different, I would think, for different people. For those who were within the body of Christ, for those who had come to know the Lord Jesus, this was likely a reverential fear, a holy fear. For some who were coming to know Christ, doubtless, it was the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The church was seeing a work of God's grace in God changing people's lives. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. But they were also beholding, as our text tells us in verse 43, many wonders and signs which were done through the apostles. 
Now, the word wonders, remember, that's that Greek word teros. It speaks of the reaction of people when they saw such miraculous works. Wonder and awe. Like, I can't believe that happened. We're going to see an example of that in Acts chapter 3. Signs point to something, right? So even as in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, we saw that Jesus was a man attested by God to the people by the miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him. They attested to the validity of his messianic identity. And in like manner, as the apostles did miraculous works, they were signs that validated or pointed to the fact that they were Jesus' spokesmen and that the message that they preached was authoritative. And we're told, as a result, fear came upon every soul. It wasn't just like a, a miracle here or there. Look, we're told that many signs and wonders were done. So for a time, just think about this, for a time in Jerusalem, all of a sudden people are getting healed, lame men are walking, perhaps blind eyes are being opened, deaf ears are being opened, and so on, and people know that God has actually invaded their territory, as it were. The supernatural became a lot more imminent. The reality of God's presence became a lot more felt, and fear came upon every soul. And I don't think the fear was limited to just those who were in the church. I think it affected people and the general populace in Jerusalem. This happened during Jesus' ministry as well. You take, for instance, in Luke chapter 7. There's a funeral procession happening. A mother has lost her boy. He has died. He's in a coffin. And Jesus approaches the coffin. The funeral procession stops. He touches the coffin and doesn't become defiled by the coffin. Right? He's the man who could touch a leper, doesn't become defiled by the leper, rather the leper becomes clean. He's the man that a woman with an issue of blood can touch the hem of his garment and he doesn't become unclean according to the Old Testament law, rather she becomes healed. So he approaches the funeral procession, he touches the coffin, the procession stands still, and he simply said, young man, I say to you, arise. He didn't have to wind up. He didn't have to charge up. Oh, this is going to take a lot. It's one thing to heal a man who's deaf. It's another thing to bring somebody back to life. All he had to do was say, young man, I say to you, arise. And then Jesus, compassionate Savior that he is, presented the boy back to his mother. Luke chapter 7, verse 15. But notice the reaction of the people. The reaction of the people is seen in verse 16 where we're told, Then fear came upon all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And I think that's the idea here in Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Miracles, wonders, signs were being done through the apostles, and all of a sudden the supernatural presence of God, an invasion of God's grace happened, and it was tangibly seen and witnessed to. And I think part of what God was doing is that he was staying the hand of those would-be persecutors. He was preventing, I think, the immediate outbreak of persecution. Doubtless, the enemies of Christ would have liked to snuff out, would have liked to have snuffed out the work of believing grace before it could spread, but the infant church would be allowed to grow. The roots would go down a bit, a testimony would be wrought, a pattern would be seen, and persecution on a larger scale would not happen yet. I think you see part of this if you go into Acts chapter 5. Remember, there's the um, Jewish religious leadership, and there's that man Gamaliel, who basically says, like, leave this movement alone. 
Leave it alone. If it's not of God, it's going to fizzle out. And if it is of God, you're going to find yourself fighting against God. I think part of what was going on in that mindset is holy fear. Some measure of fear in light of the miracles that were happening around them. Just like God used the advice, for those of you who know the Old Testament, just like God used the advice of Hushai to counter Ahithophel's counsel, providing David and his men with time to regroup, just like Pharaoh's likely fear-induced release of the Israelites bought time for Israel to get to the Red Sea, I think God used fear all around the land to give his church time to grow and for the roots to go down deep. Well, here's a little bit of application. If you're going to behold this, I would say you want to also have a takeaway from it. First, I'd say behold the calculated sovereignty of God. That God in his sovereignty, with wonders and signs done through the apostles, think of all that he did. With those acts alone, he's demonstrating his compassion, that he cared enough to heal those who were sick. He's also demonstrating his power over illness. He's also validating the message that the apostles spoke and them as messengers. He was also strengthening the faith of the fledgling church. And he likely brought a sense of fear upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which would stay the hands of would-be persecutors. And who knows how many more things that he was doing. And fear came upon the church and the populace alike. I would say also, please remember, for all of you who name the name of Christ, God has called you to conduct your journey through this life with fear. Not a kind of panicky, servile fear, but the kind of fear that he tells believers to have. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, when Peter writes to the church, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. It's a kind of holy fear. It's a reverential awe. In light of God's evaluation of our lives, that's part of the context of 1 Peter 1, like God's actually seeing our lives, He's beholding, He's evaluating us, and in light of the price He paid to redeem us, namely the blood of His Son. See, this would, I think, protect people, perhaps could be used to protect people, from a kind of casual Christianity. Please know, I'm just being honest with everybody in this room, the day will come where you will not be casual in the presence of God. Now, you'll be casual in a room with cushioned chairs. But the day will come where you will stand before a holy God. And as Christians who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, that should induce a holy sense of awe even now. As Christians who are saved, like, like you've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, yet you still will have your works judged before God. You're not saved by your works, no. But you're going to come before what the Bible calls the Bema Seat of Christ, and you're going to have an evaluation process take place where your works are going to be judged. Were they done for the right motives? Or were they done for self-glorying? Were they done for the glory of God? Or were they done for the glory of self? What were they done for? What was the motivation behind them? That should induce holy reverence. So anything that leads us to a kind of flippant Christianity, a kind of casual Christianity, you want to run away from that. Yes, there is joy and gladness in the presence of God. Yes, we love here hanging out together and being with one another and laughing and spending that time together. And there's a place for gladness, but we must not forget the place for gravity. And oftentimes there could be gladness without gravity, but we're called to have both. You're called to have gravity and understanding there's a holy God of the universe. And I'll say this on the front end, and we'll get into more of the text in a moment, but I'd say to everyone in this room, this is part of the reason why you want to make sure that you know the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. Because there's coming an unescapable moment where you will be in his holy presence. 
And it's a completely different thing being in his presence knowing that you've been justified by the blood of his son versus having your unrighteousness laid before you at what the Bible calls the great white throne of judgment where the books are opened and everything that could condemn us is brought before us and the whole world is made silent. All those who are without Christ are made silent as the God of the universe says, you are guilty. So I plead you, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him and rejoice. More about this as we get into the text. Rejoice and live in awe that the holy God of the universe sent his son to absorb your sins and to die for your sins. Well, that brings us to uh, further descriptions of what was going on in that fledgling church. Uh, Look at verses 44 and 45. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, you've probably heard of the word philanthropy. Uh, The word philanthropy basically means, from one definition I saw, the promotion of human welfare. It comes from two Greek words that mean love of man. So philanthropy is essentially, you know, a philanthropist would be somebody who seeks to do good to better the welfare of men and women. That's philanthropy, love of man. Then there's another word, another English word that we're familiar with. It's the name of Pennsylvania's largest city. It's the home of of the Liberty Bell Independence Hall, home of the Philadelphia Eagles. (laughs) Philadelphia. And you know what Philadelphia means, right? It's the city of brotherly love. Well, just like philanthropy comes from two Greek words, love of man, Philadelphia comes from two Greek words, which means love of brothers or love of brethren. What you have happening here in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, is you have philanthropy happening. Concern and promotion for the well-being of others as a result of Philadelphia, as a result of brotherly love. You have amazing acts of generosity in this New Testament church that are springing forth from brotherly love. Look at the text. We're told all who believed. All who believed what? That Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the only way, that he is the son of God. To follow Peter's line of thought in his sermon, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, that Jesus died and rose from the grave. All who believed in Jesus as Savior and Messiah, they were together. They weren't all staying in like one big house. That'd be a really big, big house, (laughs) size of maybe like a small town. But they were in an ongoing state of fellowship with one another. Fellowship, by the way, and spending time with one another is one of the um, signs of a healthy church. You know how physically you got certain physiological signs that are a sign of good health, right? If you have a decent amount of energy in your body, it's a sign of good health and so on. Well, one of the signs of a healthy church is that people spend time together, right? If we were to, you know, close the service and all of a sudden everybody left like that, that would be concerning. But one of the signs of a healthy church is that There's togetherness that's practiced. Now look at what was going on here. And I'll explain a little bit of the unique historical context this was. We're told that they had all things in common. In other words, whatever temporal possessions they had, they were willing to share. They're sharing. They weren't clinging to stuff. They were willing to part with their things to anyone who was in need. They looked out for one another. And reading this has led some people to think to the wrong conclusion that the Bible teaches right here in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, that the Bible advocates communism. 
you'd see quite a few people who would argue, they go to this text, and they say, look, the early church, they believed in communism. Some might nuance that and say they practiced socialism, but communism is more what people are getting at. Look, they had the abolition of private property. They had everything in common. No one had anything of their own. They were communists. Let me just assure you right now that the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike, does not teach nor advocate communism or socialism. It provides no mandate for it, and if properly understood, those economic and political systems, like communism and socialism, are antithetical on so many levels to what the Bible actually teaches. Let me kind of walk through some of the reasons why that is. First, I want you to notice that the giving that happened here in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, was not coerced. Wasn't coerced, wasn't enforced. Our Lindsay gives some definitions of socialism and communism. I'll just kind of communicate them to you so we have an understanding of common terms, uh, common definitions to work with. Socialism, he speaks of that as a, um, as a system where the government owns the means of production and through coercive taxation and wealth redistribution, wealth distribution, allocates resources and makes decisions over property, prices, and production. He goes on to note that communism goes even further. It is, quote, both a political and economic system that would abolish private property and give to individuals based on need. Now, I've done videos on um, communism and democratic socialism, so you can go into greater detail on the, um, the YouTube website that we have. But for the purposes of right here, let me just say the following. In Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, there's no imposition, no mandate that everybody had to abolish private property, ownership of private property, and just give it all away. This was not a requirement. It was a series of voluntary acts. Furthermore, you just read on. Read on in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, remember when Ananias comes to Peter? The exchange there shows us that communism was not being practiced. Ananias, in agreement with his wife, sold a piece of land and he lied about bringing the entirety of the proceeds to the apostles to give to those who were in need. And the issue wasn't that he didn't bring everything. The issue was that he lied about what he brought. Listen to Peter's language. He told Ananias, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? In other words, it was yours. It was your property. You could do with it what you wish. And then when you sold your property, the proceeds were yours to do with as you pleased. There was no mandate. You weren't coerced. So anybody looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, thinking there was some mandate of communism, didn't read on to Acts chapter 5, where you can clearly see that wasn't the case. There's more reasons to see that. As you go through the book of Acts, we see people retain things like ownership of homes, this wasn't something that every Christian had to do. This was something that Christians wanted to do because of a unique historical circumstance, which I'll get to in a moment. But you go through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. We see that Mary, the mother of Mark, had a home where many people were gathering to pray. You see in Acts chapter 16, verse 15, Lydia tells Paul and his co-laborers that if they had judged her faithful to the Lord to come to her house and stay and she and her household showed hospitality to Paul and his co-laborers. Even a little bit later on in this chapter, we're going to see they broke bread from house to house. And the assumption is that people still retained ownership, even as is seen later on in Acts. Third point, and this is key, context. 
Context is key. This was around the time of Pentecost, right? And remember, early on in Acts chapter 2, you had Jews from all over the world coming to Jerusalem. But then this radical event happens. They come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And many stayed in Jerusalem. Many stayed because where else are they going to hear about Jesus? The apostles are right there in Jerusalem. So they stayed in Jerusalem, and doubtless many would need support for the time in which they were staying. There were probably others who probably were ostracized for the faith as well, perhaps being put out of the synagogue, perhaps losing employment and so on. And that early New Testament church came around them and said, you know what, we're going to practice radical generosity so that these Jews who are here could stay and be provided for for a time as they learn more about Jesus Christ before they go back to their respective places. There's plenty more points that could be given. Um, there's no, ne- never anywhere in the Scriptures, Old Testament or New Testament, never any kind of instruction to give uh, one's property and possessions and the means of production into the control of the state or some organized body, ecclesiastical or other. Just don't see that. just doesn't happen. Didn't happen with Abraham in the Old Testament. Didn't happen with any disciples in the New Testament. Fifth point, believers are told to give cheerfully, not grudgingly or under compulsion. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. And give freely. Um, Paul told rich Christians, point six, not to divest themselves of all possessions, but to be generous and to share. 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Here's another point. Art Lindsay makes this point, which I think we know, but I want to just reiterate it. Narrative doesn't equal biblical prescription. So if you have a narrative description, it doesn't equal a biblical prescription. The example that he uses, which I love, I think it's a great example, we're told in the Gospels that Jesus had no place to lay his head. So now if you read that in the Gospels, you say, well, Jesus had no place to lay his head. That's a narrative description. Therefore, it's a biblical prescription for everybody. If you have somewhere to lay your head, if you have a pillow to lay on, then you're sinning if that's your thinking. Narrative descriptions do not equal biblical prescriptions. You have a a beautiful depiction right here. But it's not a mandate for everybody in the church. So, one other point. If you look at verse 45, we're told that these early Christians, they sold their possessions and goods, and they divided them among all as anyone had need. One of the things there, and I won't spend a long time on this, is that the verbs there are in the imperfect tense. Why is that important? It suggests continuous action. This was an ongoing thing. It wasn't like all of a sudden everybody was like, take a vow of poverty, divest yourselves of everything you own. The idea was it continued to happen, you, with your own eyes. Look at the end of verse 45. As anyone had need. So the selling of possessions and goods and the subsequent division happened as a result of these people who were staying in Jerusalem for a time and they had need and then free acts of generosity happened to look after these new Christians. So I say that to say um, that text can be misused but it by no means teaches socialism or communism. I just want to remind us, remind us here that we have a beautiful description here of some Christians, not a mandate for all Christians, but a beautiful description of some Christians. And I do think it should encourage us. I think it should encourage us. Let me say this. Uh, I've said this at different times. Most of you know, if, you, if you're here week in and week out when I'm preaching verse by verse through the text, we'll just go through the texts. And whatever the text is teaching on, that I will teach on. 
Those of you who have been here, and if you're visiting, let me assure you that you will not hear me trying to coerce anybody here for money. Don't want to do it. God has been gracious, and those kind of calls have never come from this pulpit. Just, we'll teach the text of Scripture, and as God moves individuals, that's, that's what happens. There's no coercion, there's no manipulation, there's freedom in Christ, and people, as they are compelled by the Holy Spirit, they just say, I want to leverage my life in this way, in support for the church, and so on. That's the Lord's prerogative. So I'm not trying to get anybody's money or anything like that. We just teach verse by verse through the Scriptures. But at the same time, having a responsibility to teach verse by verse through the Scriptures, there's no way we could look at this example of generous Christians, and if I'm going to do justice to the text, an application would be, look at the way they care for one another. And please, if you are a Christian, I encourage you, look around the body of Christ. See the needs that are there. And you could be used by God to be a difference maker in somebody's life. You know, if people have helped you, like I've told you the story probably a bunch of times about Doug Rhoda. It was a one-time gift, but it was a fork in the road for my life. But I remember a lot of other people as well, and people I can name in this room, who knew that there were different financial needs in my family and just came alongside of me. And I know and I hope that there are people that would remember times when my family would do that and so on. You have an opportunity to help write precious chapters in people's lives, God working through you. So I would encourage you, look around and may the love of the Lord Jesus Christ compel you. When Paul was telling the Corinthians to practice Christian generosity, because there were Christians who were suffering in Jerusalem and he was collecting some resources for these Christians who were suffering as a result of the famine, He encouraged the Corinthians by telling them, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Rich with everlasting life. Rich by becoming a joint heir of Christ. It should be driven by love. It should demonstrate trust in God. It should demonstrate trust in God's word. Jesus himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I think it can be fueled by the prospect of being used by God to help provide blessed chapters in the lives of God's people and their stories. Well, that brings us to the closing verses of Acts chapter 2. In verses 46 and 47, we read the following. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So they're continuing on in the temple. You've got these new believers. They're all together. They're in the temple precincts. And this had to be strange for the Jews who were there who weren't believers yet. You have this influx of, if you will, Messianic Jews who are still in the temple. They're still there for the times of prayer. And yet they seem so different They're so happy. They're praising God. They're spending time with one another after being in the temple, breaking bread from house to house and so on. They had seen that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the promises to the fathers about the Messiah. Jesus was the hope of the Jewish nation, even as he is the hope of the world. And part of what the apostles were proclaiming in the temple precincts can be seen in Acts chapter 5, verse 42. We're told, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So the apostles are there every day in houses and in the temple telling everybody, he's the Christ. It's as though they gave a description of the promised Messiah. This is what the Old Testament said that he would be. And this is who Jesus is. See how they beautifully match. 
They're doing that day in and day out. And as they're doing that, the apostles, the church is continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Uh, the language that's used here for one accord is a Greek word that literally means one passion. They had a shared passion. Their passion was for the Lord Jesus Christ. He became the shared passion and the means of their unity. They had a like precious faith. And the unbelievers in the temple precincts, doubtless they saw that. They also spent time together. They'd spend time in the temple, and then they'd go and they'd break bread from house to house. So following their time in the temple, they would eat together. We're told that they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So gladness speaks of exuberant joy. They also had simplicity of heart, sincerity, a lack of duplicity. And then finally, we're told that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They were praising God. Why were they praising God? Because they had been saved. They got it. They actually saw that all of their sins could be wiped away. And that they were. They were praising God. They were doing um, what the heavenly host did when they celebrated Jesus' birth. They were praising God. Luke chapter 2 verse 13. They were doing what the shepherds did when they saw the newborn king lying in a manger. They were praising God. They were doing what the voice from the throne of God commanded in Revelation 19.5. Praise our God, all you servants and those who fear Him, both small and great. And they had favor with the people. It's as though the common people, right, the Jewish religious leadership, the same leadership that wanted to persecute Jesus, they are the same people who are going to start the persecution of the early church. They're going to start with Peter and John. They're going to persecute the apostles. But it's as though the common people were like, this is good. Like, these people seem genuine. Like, they're actually living lives of love towards one another. There's something real here. They actually believe what they say. They actually care. They live with generosity. They live with conviction. They're praying. They're seeking the living God. They're not living in hypocrisy and duplicity. They're humble and committed to Christ and to one another. And the people are like, I may not agree with them about everything, but... There's something real going on there. They had favor with all of the people. And doubtless, that was a precursor to many people coming to know Jesus as Savior. And so the Bible, um, the Bible here at the end of Acts chapter 2 ends with this statement, and the Lord added, some manuscripts include to the church, not all do, and the Lord added daily those who were being saved. In the beginning of uh, the book of Acts, we saw that this was the continuing volume of all that Jesus continued to do and teach, even as Luke's gospel was all that he began to do and teach. We get a little glimpse here. Whenever somebody comes to know Jesus Christ as Lord, and they are added to the church, he did it. It's the Lord who adds to his church. You got, it's in the language right here. He's the one in the active voice who's doing the adding, And those who are being saved, that's in the passive voice, as though to communicate they are being acted upon. The Lord was adding to his church daily those who were being saved. Jesus was adding living stones to his temple. Jesus was finding lost sheep. Jesus was building his church. And you could see why they were praising God. I close with saying this. They were praising God because they were saved. They had come to know that they needed to be saved. Nobody will be saved by the grace of God unless they realize they need to be saved. 
They saw their guilt. They were like criminals who no longer protested their guilt or claimed innocence. They came to the judge of all the earth. They recognized his verdict of guilty as being true and right. And they knew that on the near horizon stood a sentence of eternal punishment. But they also heard in the gospel an offer of forgiveness. God had provided a means of escape whereby they might be saved. And that was through faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They believed that Jesus died and that he rose. And you might say the judge's gavel fell. And sinners, one after another, were declared righteous. And the reality of forgiveness was assured. Perhaps today in this very room, you will hear the voice of the Lord calling you. To use language from Charles Spurgeon, the Lord is still adding to his army. The light of the world is still making those who are darkness light in the Lord. The great physician is still healing those who know they are sin sick. Remember Jesus spoke about the righteous not needing a physician. The wealthy, the healthy, not needing a physician. It's the sick, those who know they are sick that need to be made well. He is still making sin sick sinners well. He's still making new lives. He's still making new creations in Christ. He's still changing the trajectory of people's lives. All of a sudden, their history of sin can be forgotten, as it were. Even their future sins and present sins paid for through faith in Christ. And perhaps he adds you to the number this day. Your life changes. And you become devoted to what the early church became devoted to. The Word of God. Fellowship in the local church. Celebrating the Lord's Supper. Praying corporately and privately. If that's you, it begins with confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. You put all of your eggs in one basket. The basket of hope in Jesus Christ alone. You deny all other routes of salvation and you see Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life and the only way to the Father. You believe that inwardly and you are saved and then you express it publicly in baptism. And while you do not know all that Jesus will do today around the world, if that's you, you could say one thing. I know today He saved me. May it be. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Father, for this um, beautiful description of the early church. And Father, we pray that such characteristics which are perfectly seen in the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, maybe, Lord, increasingly formed in your people here, Lord. Thank you for the way in which and the manner in which it has manifested. And it is a blessing, Lord, to see the way you've stirred hearts to praise you and rejoice in you and to be committed to you and so on. But Father, if it be your will, may you lead such ones in this place um, who perhaps are outside of Christ to come to know the saving work of Jesus Christ. And if it be your will, Father, even this day, may the Lord add to the church those who are being saved. Thank you for your word, Lord. Use it, we pray, to encourage your people and to build up the saints. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.